Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 38, The Scottcast, part four. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Michael, Trevor, and Caitlin for signing up already. So when we last left off, a gigantic Icelandic volcano exploded. It was 1159 BC, and all hell was breaking loose. We had a dramatic reduction in farming, a possible and equally dramatic reduction in population, a marked increase in weaponry, and chances are that this gigantic cloud of dust was screening out the sun, possibly for years. And in Orkney, we see evidence of a huge reduction in the environment. For example, samples of pollen from pine trees dropped to about 10% of their previous amount following the eruption. That's a 90% loss. And from other dig sites and records from nearby areas, such as Ireland, we see evidence of about 18 years of bad weather following that eruption. And that wasn't even the worst of it. In Orkney, and as you probably remember, I love the prehistory in Orkney, there might have been a corresponding tsunami in Orkney that followed that eruption. So, you know, double trouble. And while this really sucks for the people, as well as much of the vegetation, it was awesome for the creation of peat bogs. That's because the land became much, much wetter. And yes, yes, it rains in Scotland, but it was raining a ton more. Also, don't forget that we're going through a cooling period, so some of the vegetation wasn't really ready for this anyways. So you had a lot of decomposition and dying vegetation and the growing peat bogs. So we're looking at huge changes, and with those changes comes a drastic spread of peat. And that peat was probably dislocating the population and forcing them to move into other regions. We see this most commonly in the north, such as in Orkney and the Shetlands, actually. Now, obviously, farming was probably becoming a problem with all these changes in the climate, so it seems that many of these people, displaced or otherwise, were switching to animal husbandry. And some suggest that there was a general flight of inhabitants to the south as the north was being ravaged by terrible weather. So right about now, we probably got Highlanders and their sheep heading south under a dark cloud of Icelandic ash. And they were probably pretty well armed. Good times. And of course, there was probably famine, which would have resulted in a great mortality. And you know what happens when people are confronted with death? Well, actually lots of things happen when people are confronted with death, but one of them is an increase in faith. It's basically the thought of Hamish and Angus just died, I should probably get in good with the gods or I might be next. It makes sense, right? I mean, for me, it reminds me of Catholic school. I mean, one of the priests who taught me told me about how common it is for people to rediscover faith in old age. He called it studying for their finals. Anyway, so it's a natural human reaction to focus upon the gods and the afterlife when death becomes a concern. And it seems that that was what was going on for these early Britons. But it wasn't just a preoccupation with religion. It was also a shift in religion. The stone circles were falling out of favor, and now there is an emphasis being placed upon making offerings to bodies of water. These were usually very fine offerings, too. This wasn't a matter of, eh, I don't need this, so the gods might as well have it. Rather, it was something that kings or priests would have been doing to keep the gods happy. And there's an interesting side effect to that. If everyone is barely scratching out a living, because, you know, everybody's getting poor and whatnot, and your tribal king goes and makes an offering of immense value to the gods, 
How impressive is that? Not only is he incredibly selfless because he's doing this for the entire tribe, but it's also one hell of a demonstration of his power, his wealth, and his prestige. And also, I love the fact that water is involved in this. This is pre-Celtic Britain, and this is pre-Druidic Britain, and yet water is already important, and the close ties between Britons and water would continue throughout history. Maybe it found its start right here. Maybe we're all playing out in our own ways a culture that is indigenous to the island. That water is at the core of what being a Briton truly is. That's a wonderful thought, isn't it? And doesn't it make you want to take a swim or at least go to a wishing well? Or maybe it's just me. I've always been a bit of a water baby. Anyway, speaking of water and whatnot, the sudden reverence for water might account for the lack of bodies. Lack of bodies, you're saying? Yep, we're seeing a sudden decrease in burial mounds and whatnot, which really should surprise you considering that we have an abundance of burial evidence from earlier in Scotland's history. I mean, surely people were dying at this point. I mean, it's pretty unlikely that Scotland went through a period of immortality. But for some reason, we're having a hard time finding the bodies. But here's a thought. If water took center stage, maybe the bodies were placed in large bodies of water, either whole or following cremation. And that could account for the sudden decrease in burial finds. Anyway, so we're seeing a sudden increase in offerings in bodies of water and in peat bogs. And they weren't discarded items. These were carefully placed. Now, as luck would have it, peat bogs are excellent for preservation, so we found a ton of relics by looking through them. And, of course, there are a good amount of bronze items among them. Which actually brings us to something interesting. So bronze. It's hot stuff, right? Everyone wants it. It requires metals from different areas of the island to make, so it's hard to produce. And those two things make it precious. But everyone wants to capitalize on the wealth available from bronze. I mean, it's so precious that only the wealthy can afford it. And so you can charge a king's ransom for fine bronze goods. Consequently, only a madman would avoid being involved in the bronze trade in some way. And there's plenty of opportunity. You have mining, metalworking, transport. There's all sorts of ways you can get involved. This was a massive cash cow. So there's a huge bronze industry that starts to build up. Everyone's getting into the business. And you know what happens when everyone's getting into the business of developing and selling precious objects, right? I mean, there's a reason why diamonds are very carefully and slowly released into the market. When you have too much, the market gets flooded. And when the market gets flooded, the items aren't precious anymore. And thus, the market collapses. So guess what probably happened in addition to the awesome Icelandic volcanic disaster and the probable tsunami? Yep, we also had a collapse of the bronze trade. After all, there are only so many rich nobles who would want decorative axes. But worry not, there would still be a need for bronze. They just wouldn't use it for decorative reasons anymore. Weapons, on the other hand. Now there's an idea. And guess what followed that? Well, actually, we're not sure, but probably warfare. After all, later on, we're seeing the appearance of hill forts in the first millennium BC, and if you're dealing with armed warlords, you're probably going to want to build a hill fort if you have the resources for it. But this isn't like a Mott and Bailey situation. Honestly, when I first learned of hill forts, I thought of the Mott and Bailey, so don't feel bad if that's the image that comes to mind. But no, this was nothing like that. These were towns that were built on a hill, 
usually with a ditch that was dug around it. And then the earth from that ditch would be used to make an earthen rampart on the interior, and then you'd have a wall that would go around it. And this wasn't a little tiny fort for soldiers. I mean, this was seriously a, basically a walled town. It wasn't the fort that you see at the start of Braveheart. Rather, it was more like Edoras in the Two Towers. How's that for nerd cred? Anyway, there are hundreds of them built in Scotland, mostly in the south of Scotland, which again suggests something of a migration from the highlands and probably resulting conflicts. Now, the interesting thing about these hill forts is that we don't know how long they are inhabited. Some of them look like they are full-fledged towns capable of housing as many as 5,000 people. But did they? Or were they just fallback positions? Or maybe seasonal locations? It's hard to say. Some argue that the location of the forts wouldn't have allowed for permanent settlement, that they would have only been occasional residences at best. But that's a hell of a lot of work just for a summer home. And we've been wrong before. So I'll say this. We don't know how often they were inhabited, but they were popping up all over southern Scotland at around this time. Also by 1000 BC, we're starting to see the appearance of domesticated horses in Scotland. It's not clear how long these horses have been there, since we're just dating this based upon the appearance of metal bridles and whatnot. But now we have horses. Well, I guess we don't have horses. Horse is a pretty misleading term considering their size, so let's revise that. So now we have ponies, because they really weren't that big. And the question you're probably asking is, would they have used these ponies to fight? Well, I'm not sure. They might have. The Caledonians would later use mounted warriors, and their weapons and shields were particularly well-suited for cavalry combat rather than direct infantry engagements that the Romans would have preferred. But did these early Britons use the ponies for war? Did they use them purely for labor? Or maybe they used them as a quick transport system, maybe a quick troop transport, like the chariots were used in southern England against the Romans. I mean, we just don't know. And how about this one? Was the ability to fight on horseback a symbol of status? For example, was being wealthy enough to own a horse and use it in combat sufficient to elevate your class level? Basically, were there early Celtic knights? I wish I could give you a solid answer, but this is archaeology, so it's rare that we have one. But it's pretty interesting, right? So we have horses. Well, we have ponies. Anyway, let me blow your mind really quickly. All of this, the ponies, the forts, the bronze, the industry, the trading, all of that, all of this was before the rise of Celtic culture on the island. Yep, Scotland had a culture before the Celtic period. Cave dwellers indeed. And also, we're still in the Bronze Age, but not for long. At around 700 BC, Iron Age was reaching Britannia. But here's the rub. It doesn't spread super fast. I mean, you've got the tribes up in the Shetlands who were just now figuring out bronze by the time that iron appeared in southern Britain. So needless to say, it's going to take Britain quite a while to fully adopt iron. But the effect of iron upon the island cannot be overstated. Think about it just in terms of economies and availability. If you wanted to make bronze, you needed to be large and wealthy enough to have a good trade network and that trade network needed to have contact with Cornwall or the continent in order to acquire tin. Because you had to have tin in order to make bronze. And you also either needed trade contact with a copper producer or a mine of your own that produced copper. Because, you know, bronze is made out of tin and copper. 
And then you also had to have the know-how on how to combine those two metals in order to create an alloy. And in the end, you had bronze, which is beautiful and much more useful than either of the two metals, but it was kind of a soft metal. Now, iron, that's entirely different. Not just because it's harder and more durable, but also because you just needed access to iron ore, and iron deposits were much more common in Britannia. So this is all great news, right? And actually, let's get a little into iron and how it's produced, since I think it's interesting, and therefore I assume you find it interesting as well. So to produce and work with iron, you needed more advanced technology. But to start off our discussion, let's assume you have access to iron ore. Either you manage to get your hands on it, or you have your own mine. So now you've got the iron ore, you can just start making weapons, right? Wrong. First you need to bloom the iron, which meant that you needed to smelt the ore and get rid of the slag. And you needed a hell of a lot of heat to pull this off. So right there, you find technological and economic barriers to the production of iron. Because you need a lot of resources to get something that hot. But let's say you can do that. And you can keep doing this until you have some refined iron. Well, now what? Well, you'll probably want to cast the iron into a mold. Once it cools down enough to be stable, you can probably start beating it into the shape that you want and you'll need to keep heating it back up again to make it pliable enough to work with. So again, you need advanced technology and an infrastructure to enable you to produce that sort of heat over long periods of time. But let's say you've got it. So you're hammering the bejesus out of this thing, and it's starting to take the shape that you want. Let's say it's a sword. So it's starting to look like a sword. It's you know long and pointy. Well, now what? Well, you're going to want this sword to be strong. So you're going to need to temper it. So what you do is you get it super hot. I mean, we're talking about about 900 degrees Celsius. The thing is white hot. You get it hot, hot, hot. And then you immediately put it in ice water, or at least very cold water. Now what that's going to do is it's going to make the iron brittle, but also very hard. But we don't want a brittle sword. So we heat it back up again gently. You don't heat it right back up again. You don't get it white hot immediately. You do it gently, which releases some of the stress on the metal. And now you have a tempered sword. Pretty neat, right? But also not something that would have been easy to do. And being a skilled smith would have once again placed you in high regard, given that it was such an expensive undertaking and such a valuable commodity. Okay, so along with the spread of Iron Age technology to the island, we're seeing evidence of increasing ties between Britain and the continent, which again might account for the later appearance of Celtic culture. And I said the magic words. Celtic culture, so I should probably address when it got there. But I don't want to get too deep into it since we've already spoken about this at length in the Members Only podcast. But basically, whether you think it was an invasion or the result of cultural spread, you can't deny that by hook or by crook, Celtic culture made it to the British Isles by around 4 or 500 BC. And actually, by 400 BC, we're even seeing the evidence of chariot burials in Scotland. And these chariots were pretty much similar to the chariots that we spoke about during Caesar's invasions way back in May of last year. In fact, the Britons would hold on to the use of chariots long after the Celts of Europe would abandon them. Old habits die hard. And speaking of old habits, along with the introduction of Celtic artwork and languages, we're also getting hints of headhunting, which was a Celtic thing, and even references to ghost fences later on. Ghost fences were apparently fences of impaled heads that were supposed to magically stop your enemies. Our old friend Venutius, do you remember him? Well, he tried one of these, actually. Caractacus probably did, too. 
It's been quite a long time since we've spoken about those two, hasn't it? Anyway, they must have used discount materials because their fences didn't hold up too well against the Roman legions. But the headhunting and the ghost fences actually do tell us a little bit about Celtic culture. So let's get back to the headhunting thing because I'd like to tie that into something a little more modern if I can. So again, if you look at myths and general culture, there's a strong indication that the Celts believe that there's a lot of power in the head. And that the head of a great warrior was something to be prized. So get this. And as far as we can tell, Edmund Spencer was telling the truth and this actually happened. Here we go. So it's 1580 AD, and Murrah O'Brien, who was an Irish chief, was hung, drawn, and quartered. Tough break for him, right? But here's where things get interesting. Following his beheading, his foster mother sprinted down to the gallows and snatched up his head, and then drank the blood from it, stating that the earth wasn't worthy to drink it. Now, was this the act of a crazy old bat? Oh, almost certainly. But... Was it a vestige of an ancient Celtic culture that was being acted out by a crazy old bat? That is also quite possible. Alright, are you still listening or did I lose you on that? Well, I'm going to keep on soldiering on and assume that you didn't rage quit over how messed up that little side note is. Anyway, so back to Scotland during the spread of Celtic culture. So at around this same time, the forts that we've been talking about were getting smaller, but they were by no means small. They were just smaller than the very early ones. The early ones were gigantic, but those were abandoned, and these were just smaller, more densely populated hill forts that were being built. And so with the arrival of Celtic culture in Britannia and its adoption in Scotland, things were changing. There were language and artistic changes. There were headhunting changes. And of course, there were changes in politics. I mean, Celtic culture was rather warlike, right? So with that in mind, what was going on with the forts in southern Scotland? Were there a ton of powerful kings crowded into a relatively small area? If so, how could they sustain that? What did their income look like, not to mention their intertribal relations? And how did these forts fit into that network? Were these forts permanent settlements? Maybe. But they did run into the same trouble of logistics that the larger forts ran into. Were they defensive structures for use in times of trouble? Were they symbols of royal power? Or were they just used to house the royal retinue when the king traveled around his domain? After all, kings were rather mobile at this time. Who knows? There were probably a wide variety of reasons why they built these things. But the thing that I'm truly on the fence on is whether they were built purely for defensive reasons. I'm fairly certain that defense was part of the reason behind them. I mean, take a look at the mythic Celtic warrior band, the Fianna. Those guys were basically a traveling band of aristocratic raiders when you look at them with a critical eye. If there's an element of truth to the myths, then there probably was a need for defensive strongpoints. But on the flip side, we look at Celtic myths and whatnot, and we see a culture that, while warlike, would also see the battles as challenges and meet in specific locations for battle. Hell, we have records of how Celts would sometimes have champions fight to settle the score rather than fighting an entire battle. A culture like that doesn't seem like the sort to engage in regular siege warfare. There's too much honor at stake. And actually, the newest myth I read to the members deals with some of this culture. But on the other hand, the Celts were either new to the island or the culture had just bled into the island. If they were new, they might have needed strongholds to deal with the superior numbers of natives until they could be absorbed into their ranks. 
If it was just cultural spread, then you have to assume that there were other tribes who hadn't yet adopted the warrior honor system yet. Or maybe this whole honor thing was only for certain sorts of conflict where ritual battle could take place, and others would just involve harrying the countryside. We know that Irish kings would sometimes harry farms rather than engage in direct battle, so perhaps these hill forts were developed to cope with that. Or maybe they were trying to deal with traveling raiders like the Fianna, while intertribal squabbles could be dealt with in a more civilized way. You know, with ritual combat. It's a tough nut to crack, isn't it? I mean, we know that there were a lot of forts that were built, and we assume that they were built by kings, and they were built during this rise of Celtic culture. But what their primary motivation was is hard to say. But at the very least, maybe the way they all coexisted in such a small area was due to the culture of settling conflicts with champions rather than large battles. Or maybe it was just that they all had very powerful forts and they just hid in them all the time. I mean, I'm just guessing here. The point is, though, that Celtic culture was now in Scotland, and it was being absorbed by the native culture. Oh, and I should probably throw this out there while I'm at it. It's also quite likely that men and women fought alongside one another. We have plenty of myths that reflect this, as well as tales of heroic Celtic warrior women and warrior leaders from the pre-Roman era of Britannia and Ireland. Now we're getting close to the period in history where we're getting records of how the early tribes in Scotland were either tattooed or painted. And that actually is another portion of early Scottish culture that radiates mystery, isn't it? I mean, how long had they been doing this? What was the purpose of tattooing or painting the body? Was it religious? If you had the image of a boar upon you, and you were from Orkney, remember they were the boar tribe, would you be embodying your body with the strength of that spirit or animal? Maybe the marks were for identification, you know, a further way to set yourself apart. Or maybe it was for a status reason, allowing people to clearly establish themselves and their place in society. Other cultures throughout history have done that. Or maybe it was just done for personal reasons, much like the reasons for which we get tattoos today. It's not clear. But at this point, it does appear that the tribes of Scotland were adopting names in honor of various animals, and they were either painting or tattooing their bodies. So it gives us an interesting perspective on the culture that's growing. And maybe this goes without saying, but this was an oral culture. I know that we've spoken about this in the past, but only with a few exceptions, Celtic culture in Britannia at this time was oral. The stories and songs were told rather than being written down. And in fact, that culture persisted for millennia. Take the famous 18th century poet Dunan Ban McIntyre. He was illiterate, and he composed his Gallic poems entirely in his head and kept them there. Which, frankly, I find amazing. So we're seeing a culture that was focused upon memory and the telling of stories verbally rather than keeping a written record. And that's something I find very endearing about the culture, even though it makes researching it a rather laborious chore. But again, we've beaten the Celtic culture thing to death in both this podcast and the members podcast, so I'm not going to retread that ground. But let's talk about a few changes in the culture of Scotland that the people would have experienced. The houses that were being built were now generally round and thatch-roofed, similar to the homes and villages that the Romans would encounter and often destroy when they invaded. Now these circular homes were timber-walled, and many were as much as 900 square feet in size, so they are fairly large. Their conical roofs were supported by a circle of posts on the inside of the building, and in the center you would typically find a hearth and then have sleeping areas 
probably with warm fleeces and straw, next to the exterior wall of the building. Now, if the Britons were concerned with privacy, it would have been a small matter to rig up some sort of screen. On the outside of the building, there was usually a ditch around the house that functioned as a drain to deal with rainwater. But that could have only been so effective. I mean, these homes would have probably been wet and muddy in winter. They were also probably really dark and smoky. I mean, just like their predecessors in Scarabray, there weren't any windows in these homes, so most of life would have been lived outside, since there would have been very little daylight that would be able to reach the interior of the homes. Now, some of these buildings had rather high walls, and it would have allowed them to have another level in the building to be constructed. One that would have been up towards the top of the cone of the thatch roof, reachable by ladder. This would have been prime real estate in the cold days of winter, since all the heat would funnel up there. Something else you might find interesting is the fact that many of these homes were oriented so that the door faced east, the direction of the rising sun. Maybe this was for religious purposes, or cultural purposes. Or maybe it was just an ancient alarm clock. Personally, I suspect it was probably a blend of all of them. Since there's a significant practical advantage to that, but we've also found evidence of buried objects in the doorway, which strike me as some sort of animism or charm, so there might have been some sort of religious or cultural reason for placing the doorway in that direction. And of course, this is Scotland, so we're going to find occasionally in these houses some eerie throwbacks to that morbid culture that we've come to know. For example, at Knep on Lewis, and actually, as an interesting side note, Lewis is a pre-Celtic name. That name is older than Celtic culture in Britain. Anyway, so Knip on Lewis, we've got a dig side of a house there. But what makes it unique is that there's a 12-year-old boy who had spinal bifida and died. And he was cut into quarters and then buried at the house. Why? Well, we don't know. But it does seem familiar by now, doesn't it? Anyway, back to construction. Sometimes the roundhouses, those houses I've been speaking about, would be built over man-made ponds or locks. And in those instances, you'd have what's called a cranog, which we discussed in the Celtic construction episode. Cranogs were incredibly durable, and actually there's an interesting tale of fleeing Jacobites who took refuge in cranogs. Well, for them to be fleeing and to be Jacobites and whatnot, that would have placed them at 1746 AD. So they kind of stuck around for a little bit. Now, there were also larger roundhouses that were constructed over a mound of earth with a significantly larger ditch dug around the exterior. And these were called ring ditch houses. Now, the construction of these buildings was probably for cattle herders as there are spaces for cows to be tethered and the size and high walls would have allowed the cattle to be brought inside during the dead of winter. And then the family obviously would be living on the upper level. And this would actually have both protected the valuable animals because cattle were incredibly important to the early Britons. They were an enormous status symbol. And actually, there are myths in Celtic cultures that are just about cattle raids. This is how important cattle are. So anyway, if you had this building, it would have allowed you to protect your cattle in winter. And also, it would have provided some additional and much-needed heat to the home during that same period. So the people could be living above and staying a little bit warmer than normal. Now, all of these homes required a great deal of timber to maintain. Just maintaining the smaller roundhouses could have required as many as 650 trees throughout its lifetime. Consequently, resources might have gotten scarce as time went on, and populations quite possibly could have grown large. And that could have caused some significant pressure. 
But whatever the reason, the tribes of Scotland were now on the move and were cultivating new ground. So by 250 BC, we see evidence of rapid clearance of woodlands in previously abandoned areas of Scotland. Crops were planted, and Scotland would begin to take on the shape that would become familiar to us. Now, in addition to planting fields and building houses, they were also building souterrains, which looked remarkably similar to earlier tombs that we've spoken about in prior episodes. I mean, both in shape and in location, they looked very familiar. I mean, they were underground. But these things weren't tombs. They were actually just pantries. By building them underground, they could ensure that things would stay cool and dark and dry. These ancient Britons would use these souterrains to store their grain, their dairy, and their meat in large pottery containers. And the containers were crucial since vermin were an ever-present problem. So now we're coming to the end of the BC era of Scotland. And let's get back to my favorite spot, the islands. So on Orkney, the people who are now probably known as the Boar Tribe, which led to the island getting its name, as well as the people on the Shetlands, Caithness, and Sutherland, had unified, at least culturally if not politically. And actually, parts of the Hebrides might have also been involved in this unit. Anyway, these people started creating brocks. These were large stone towers that I spoke about in the Celtic construction episode. They were unique and, frankly, really impressive for their time. Stone towers wouldn't become common again until the Middle Ages, and yet here we have Orkney and its allies leading the way. Now, if you want an image in your mind of what a brock would have looked like, I guess your best example I can think of off the top of my head is that terrible Christopher Lambert movie, The Highlander. Remember when Lambert and Connery were fighting the Kurgan in a stone tower, and the Kurgan was basically just knocking the tower over? Well, that was a brock. Anyway, so this is basically what life was like for the people of Scotland shortly before the Roman invasion. You know, the brocks and the houses and the agriculture and whatnot, not the Kurgan. So they had adopted Celtic culture, though they had their own spin on it. They were agricultural. They were prolific and inventive builders. They were hardy and sophisticated settlers. And yeah, you heard that right. They were sophisticated. Do you remember what happened in 43 AD? Do you remember the defeat of the Britons at Camulodunum by Claudius? Well, I mean, really by Aulus Plautius, but whatever. You know, the one where Claudius and his ridiculous war elephants had that photo op? Well, when he conquered the area, there were 11 kings of Britannia who submitted to him, according to record. Now, among these kings who submitted to him at Camulodunum was a king from Orkney. For quite some time, this was assumed to be essentially a typo. But recent digs have put some doubt on that assumption. For example, we found evidence that the aristocracy of Orkney had access to pottery that was from Essex and rather near Camelodunum. And that was all dated to around 60 AD. So it's entirely possible that one of these 11 kings that submitted to Rome was indeed the king of Orkney. Consider what that means. Not only was contact between the upper reaches of Scotland and the southern parts of Britain close, but communication was quick and sophisticated. It would have had to have been because either Orkney was mobilized to assist in the defense of Britannia upon hearing of Claudius's invasion, or the king learned of the defeats of the British army and had sufficient information to assess the strength of this new enemy and his own standing, and such that he quickly came south to make peace with the powerful Romans. Either way, it sheds a great deal of light on what life was like up in the north. These weren't wild lunatics and cave dwellers. They were calculating and worldly, 
and soon they will be ready to challenge the might of Rome. So as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also head over to the website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and join in the forums and whatnot over there. Or you can join us at Facebook at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And as always, thanks for listening.